You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. How many of you remember your younger school days, by show of hands, when you learned about the life cycle of a butterfly? Does anyone remember this, right? Yeah? If you're a really good student, maybe you remember the Greek word that's used to describe this process. Does anyone know? Just shout it out. Metamorphosis. That's right. It's the official term. It means to transform, meta, uh, shape, morph, morphosis, to change shape. And if, if you remember, there's four stages in the, in the life cycle of a butterfly. The first is the, the egg stage where the adult female butterfly lays a bunch of really tiny uh, eggs on a, a leaf. And uh, when, when they hatch, that leaf becomes food for these you know, teeny little caterpillars. That's stage one. The second stage is the feeding stage where I always think of that Eric Carl book, The Hungry Caterpillar, the, the, the feeding stage, the caterpillar has one job, and that is to eat, 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 and eat, right? Continually eat so, so it can grow and grow and grow, and it's storing up nourishment for the next phase. And at this time, that caterpillar grows up to 100 times its original size. Then the, the third stage is the chrysalis stage, We'd call this the, the cocoon stage. The caterpillar is fully grown, stops eating, and, and becomes uh, encased in a cocoon, sits still, suspended from a, a leaf or hidden under a leaf for protection. And for a, a couple of weeks, slowly, with no movement on the outside, but inside this transformation is taking place. Legs are, are growing long. Wings are, are growing. Other parts are, are starting to take shape. And then the fourth and final stage is when that cocoon, chrysalis, breaks open and emerges a adult butterfly, this beautiful creature, the stubby little caterpillar is no more, and now a beautiful butterfly emerges. And this has been a really common, throughout church history, this has been a really common picture uh, for what God does when he saves a sinner, this metamorphosis picture. I think it's really helpful. A transformation takes place when someone becomes a Christian. The old is gone, and the new has come. They, They experience a spiritual metamorphosis, if you will. But where the illustration breaks down is in the life cycle of a butterfly, that happens once, and then, you know, maybe a month later, the butterfly dies, which, by the way, I didn't know that. It saddened me. I thought butterflies lived a lot longer. I'm like, only a month? But for the Christian, when a Christian becomes a new creation, transformation happens, but it also starts ongoing life of transformation, ongoing spiritual metamorphosis is what Jesus calls us to. This is actually the, the, the primary message of, of Jesus when he began his preaching ministry. We'll get to Psalm 51 in a second, but consider with me Mark chapter 1, verse 5. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus begins his ministry. John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. He's done. He's been arrested. And Jesus then begins his ministry, and here's what he says. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and here's his message, repent and believe in the gospel. 
Now, you may know that the New Testament was written in Greek, and that word repent is not metamorphosis, but metanoeo, which means a change, meta, of one's mind. It involves turning from one way of thinking that's opposed to God toward the right way of thinking. And when Jesus said this, he wasn't just saying this is a, a one-time thing. He's saying the life of following me is one of ongoing repentance. Martin Luther put it this way, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Jesus calls us to a, a, a lifestyle of spiritual metamorphosis. We're conformed into the image of Christ, growing in holiness, turning from sin and self-rule to Christ and His rule of, over our life. And as we come to Psalm 51 this morning, we, we see King David right in the middle of this process. We see David practicing what Jesus later calls all of us to in Mark 1.15. And as we, as we study David's very candid story and his prayer of contrition in Psalm 51, what we're seeing is a pathway of transformation, a pathway of repentance that we must all follow if we're going to experience this ongoing growth that Christ has called us to. See, I, I think it's very easy for most of us, religious or not, to admit that we have problems, right? That we have areas of our life that, that need to, to change. You can go around the room, maybe you say, I'm too impatient when I drive, I know that's wrong. Or I don't trust God enough with my finances, or, or I get angry with the kids too much, or I have a, a short fuse, or I, I tend to tear people down with my words, I hurt others, I struggle with sexual sin. The, the list can go on and on and on. Very rarely do we meet anybody who would say, yes, I'm nailing life right now, right? I'm perfect. We can all admit we have these struggles. I think the hard part for us is that when we see these areas of our life, we tend to ignore the seriousness of sin and thus we downplay the grace of God that is meant to meet that sin as the remedy for that sin, right? We make excuses. Say, yeah, I was angry, but she was really pushing my buttons, right? We've done that before. Or we've, we, maybe we find someone worse than us. That's easy to do, right? Yeah, I'm kind of greedy, but man, we live in such a greedy world, right? Our country is so greedy, right? Compare ourselves to others to make ourselves feel better. When we do that, when we don't take our sins seriously, what we're doing is we're stunting our spiritual transformation. Because if we're, if we're not honest about the seriousness of our sin before a holy God, we will not be amazed by the grace which He delivers for us in such sin. Okay? And that is what Psalm 51 is about. If you're going to say, here, here's what it is in a nutshell, in a sentence. Psalm 51 is a pathway of repentance that confronts us with the greatness of our sin so that we can then be comforted by the grandeur of Christ's mercy. There was a Puritan named Thomas Watson who said it very simply. He said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That's Psalm 51 in a nutshell. And as we walk through this psalm this morning, we're going to see this four-step pathway of repentance that Christ is calling all of us to. Okay, I'm going to give it to you if you're a note-taker. Number one, conviction. That's where we experience the awareness of our sin. Conviction. Number two, confession. That's where we honestly acknowledge the bitterness of our sin before God. 
Number three, assurance. That's where we taste the the sweetness of Christ's grace for us. And number four, praise. That's our response where we live a life for the glory of God and the good of others. Conviction, confession, assurance, and praise. And that's the continual process of spiritual metamorphosis that God has called us to. So let's jump in with number one. Number one, conviction. Experiencing the awareness of Sin. Now, what we have in, in Psalm 51 is a case study on those four, four things. And so if we look at verse 1, and we look at the superscription, which is the description in verse 1, we're, we're told the background of this psalm. It says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Okay? When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, it'd be easy to say, okay, that's just, some, you know, we'll skip past that. Let's jump into the actual psalm. But this is so important because what this does is it gives us the context for why David is praying this prayer in the first place. And what it does is it points us back to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, okay? We need to, we need to work through those two chapters really briefly to understand what's happening here because this is where the conviction takes place. In 2 Samuel 11... David's in Jerusalem, and the text tells us that it's at a time when kings should be out in the battlefield. But David's home, he's by himself, he is idle. His men are out fighting with the armies who are against God and the people of Israel. And one day, he sees a woman bathing on a roof. I don't know what he was doing out on the roof looking over Jerusalem, but that's what happened. And this woman is named Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, who was one of David's mighty men. He had this close group of men who fought with him for years in certain battles. And Uriah was one of those men, meaning that he was a trusted friend of David. Well, he's out fighting the battle where David should have been. David sees Bathsheba, and in his lust, he uses his kingly authority And he commits adultery with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. And instead of recognizing wrongdoing, what does David try to do? He tries to cover his sin with a plan. He's going to bring Uriah back from the battlefield so that he could sleep with his wife Bathsheba. And David could then pretend that the child was theirs. That's his plan to cover up his sin. So he calls Uriah. But Uriah is a righteous man. And he refuses to enjoy, he comes comes back to Jerusalem, but he refuses to enjoy the comforts of his home, he says, while his fellow brothers are out fighting in the armies of the Lord. So David's plan doesn't work. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield. But David, instead of recognizing wrongdoing and confessing his sin, he hatches another plan. And this plan is, is... is to have all of the men in Uriah's battalion who are, are fighting on the front lines in the thick of battle pull back. He tells Joab, the commander, have them pull back, but don't tell Uriah. So when they pull back, Uriah is left to fight alone and is killed. And that's exactly what happens. And he murders his friend. That's 2 Samuel 11 in a nutshell. Now, thankfully... God loves David too much to allow him to continue on in his sin. So in chapter 12, 
God confronts David through the prophet Nathan. And we don't have time to dig into it, but I'd encourage you to read it later if you're not familiar with the story. Nathan tells David this parable. It's a creative way that God gives Nathan to to show David his sin. And David realizes, God opens his eyes and he realizes the greatness of his sin. And he experiences conviction. And he responds very simply in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. That's the context for Psalm 51. We don't know when, but sometime after that moment, he writes this prayer of contrition. Now, if you hear that story and think, because all of us, um, all of us inwardly are tempted towards self-righteousness. If you hear that story and think, man, David was a big screw-up. Number one, you're right. But if that then means in your mind, I'm glad I'm not that bad, then you're, you're missing the point here. In fact, let me remind you, the two great sins that David committed in 2 Samuel 11, Jesus says very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount that all of us have those seeds of sin in our hearts. You may not have committed adultery with somebody, but if you have any sort of lustful thoughts, you have committed adultery in your heart, Matthew chapter 5. You may not have murdered somebody, but if you've ever been sinfully angry with another person, you have that seed of murder in your heart. So Jesus tells us, hey, listen, the ground is level before a holy God. You and I are in the same boat with David. Maybe the outward expression of our sin hasn't been as great as his here, but we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Let me also remind you, this is a worship song that corporate Israel sang when they came together. Yes, it's very personal, but the whole church, the whole group of people were singing this song as their own, as we're meant to own this psalm as our own. And so for David, this pathway of repentance, it begins like it does for all of us. It begins with conviction, experiencing the acute awareness of his sin. It's like, it's like when you go to the dentist and, and they do the x-ray and then they, they pull it up and put it on that light board and they say, You've had this pain, you might not know what it is, there's the cavity right there. And you're like, oh, that's why my tooth has been hurting, right? That's what God through Nathan does for David. Now notice a few things about this conviction. It's God who initiated this process in David. If it was up to David, he would have continued to cover up his sin, right? He had one plan that didn't work. He hatched another one that seemingly did work. If that wouldn't have worked, I can, I'm convinced he would have continued on. But God, in his loving grace, pursues David, makes David aware of his sin. This is, encur- this is both encouraging and challenging to each one of us. Because one, it, it, it's encouraging because it means that the good shepherd always goes after his wayward sheep. I don't know about you, that is so encouraging to me. He will not let us run away from the flock. A few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 23, probably the most famous psalm ever, right? Same person. David wrote that psalm. Do you remember how he ends? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, or you could could translate that, chase me down all the days of my life. What is God doing when he brings conviction to David over the sin? God's goodness and mercy is chasing David down. He's initiating conviction. But it's also challenging to us that God initiates conviction because it means that there are constantly areas of our life, you and I, where we are completely blinded to the reality of our sinfulness. I don't know your story, but I I know as an expert sinner, right, 
who can relate, I can tell you that there are areas in your life right now of sin and struggle that you, you may not, you're, you're blinded to. And you need God and His grace to initiate conviction. We lack spiritual self-awareness. We have these blind spots. This means we need to be continually asking God to reveal this in us. I think of Psalm 139. Search me, O God. That's a prayer we should be constantly praying. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a prayer to say, Lord, convict me of the sin I'm blinded to. Praise God that he initiates that. He loves to answer that prayer. Now notice also, notice how God brought conviction to David. Now he could have just awoken him up in the middle of the night or maybe while he was reading the scriptures and that often happens, but how did God do it? He did it through a trusted friend. You see that? He did it through Nathan, a prophet. Now a person can't themselves bring conviction of sin. That's God's job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But Nathan here... He's an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to bring conviction. And, and Scripture's clear that we who believe the gospel, we, we always have a companion who will convict us, right? It doesn't mean conviction always comes through other people. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, awakens us up. But do you know how the Spirit often works? By using other people in your life to reveal to you the blind spots of your sin so that the Holy Spirit may convict you. You and and I won't experience the benefits of conviction to the fullest if we're not in regular, meaningful relationships with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It can be so easy to skip over that here. I'm drawing that whole point from the word Nathan, right? But Nathan was there. And the application for us is simple. Do we have Nathans in our lives? Are, Are you a Nathan to other people? I think back in my moments of conviction in my life, almost all of them have been through people, friends who love God and they love me enough to point out my sin, to have the hard conversation, to, as the New Testament says, speak the truth in love, right? So what brothers and sisters in Christ do you know and love, and they know and love you so much that they're willing to cross that pain line of conversation and say, hey, listen, I've noticed this about you and I'm concerned. Who, who are your Nathans? Or are you Christian? Are you willing, people around you that you love and care for, are you willing to sort of die to self and when it's necessary, cross that line and speak the truth in love to your brothers and sisters in Christ when they're, when they're straying away from the path of following Jesus. We live in a very isolated culture, and I think this is true not just in the world out there, but in the church as well. I think we're very good at having the illusion of relationships. We've got long friends lists, maybe it's in person or on social media, but we're not talking about uh, quantity here. We're talking about quality. Do we actually have true, genuine connections, right? It's easy to tick off the box of I go to church, I go to gospel community, I share some prayer requests time to time, but do we have the the willingness to, to do the hard and awkward work of addressing our sin, right? And if not, I pray, ask God, Lord, give me a Nathan. Lord, help me to be a Nathan to others, 
Now notice also that Nathan, this is easily missed, Nathan was a prophet. And so when he was speaking to David, he was speaking as one who received the words of God. So we don't have prophets anymore today, but Nathan's word here was Scripture quality. So the Word of God brought conviction to David. And the same is true for us today. If we want to experience conviction of sin, we have to place ourselves under the Word of God continually. We have to read it. We have to hear it proclaimed faithfully. We have to study it with others. What the Holy Spirit does through the Word is he holds up a mirror to your life to show you who you really are, right? I don't know. I, I should have Googled this. Like, what's the average time, uh, times we look at a mirror every day? I'm sure it's crazy high, right? Because you want to know, do I have anything in my teeth? Do I have a booger in my nose? Is there barbecue sauce on my shirt? I'm about to go into this meeting. Is my hair look funny? You want to see so you can rectify the situation. That's what God's Word does to us, right? It holds up the mirror to us of God's righteousness to show us our sin, not to beat us down, but so that we can properly apply the grace of the gospel to us. It brings conviction. Okay? That's conviction. That's number one. The Holy Spirit, in David's case, um, God makes him through Nathan aware of, of this. He does it for us through the word, through prayer, the power of the Spirit, through trusted friends. And he does that so that we may confess our sin unto, unto him. That's number two. Number one, conviction. Number two, confession. This is where we honestly acknowledge the bitterness of sin. David begins his prayer in verse one with a plea. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, one of the beautiful things about this psalm is that David simultaneously acknowledges the mercy of God while he confesses the seriousness of his sin. So they're both going in tandem together. He doesn't wait till the end to tell you that God's merciful, right? While he's pleading for the mercy of God, but he's also acknowledging, and he's not pulling any punches either when he describes sin. It's a lesson for us. Both of those are important, right? I think there's a tendency in modern Christianity that I've seen to try and soften the edges of Scripture to soften the rough edges of the gospel message, we're very comfortable using words like grace and mercy and forgiveness, which we absolutely should use, but sometimes we downplay or even change words like repentance, sin, transgression, and judgment. Right? Those are more, we sort of cringe at those words. So we try to find euphemisms. Grace is great, mercy is great, God's love is great. But when we're talking about those other things, what if we just, instead of sin, what if we call it brokenness? Or instead of transgression, what if we, what if we say there's a sickness? Or repentance, because we don't want to sound like those weirdos, you know, with the, the, the signs who are yelling at people. Repentance is a tough word. Maybe we just talk about change. And, and I, that's concerning to me, I see that tendency in my own life because it's much easier to tell my friend that God's grace is for him than it is to tell him that he's a sinner who needs to repent, right? One is way less awkward. But friends, that person will not understand the need of grace and mercy if they are not also told of their sin and transgression and need of repentance, 
If you downplay the latter, you will muddy up the former. Again, as Watson said, if sin is not bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So what David does is he, he teaches us a lesson here on how to call sin what it is. He uses all sorts of words to show us that sin is serious. Think about this. We're going to jump around a little bit here. But the first word he uses, he uses the word transgressions. Verse 1, verse 3, and verse 13. This gets at the idea, we don't use this word at all anymore. This gets at the idea of our sin as a willful defiance against God's law. It's not just an accidental ignorance. It is a willful rebellion against God. He also uses, obviously, the word sin, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 9, and verse 13. It's the most common word, and it talks about the idea of this word is missing the mark. So failing to measure up to God's standard. He uses the word iniquity to describe his sin, verse 2, verse 5, verse 9, which means a deviation from the path of, of following God. He speaks of evil in verse 4, referring to his sin. He uses the word blood guiltiness in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. This is a direct reference to his murder of Uriah. I am guilty because I have shed the blood of an innocent man. And having this holistic description of sin, what David shows us is that true confession involves taking full responsibility for our actions before a holy God, our deeds, our words, our thoughts. This is not a half-hearted apology. All, I think all of us know what it's like to give a half-hearted apology and to receive a half-hearted apology. Here, let me give you an example. This is my favorite one. I'm sorry if I offended you in some way. How many of you have said that before? You have. Right? That's like, it's so vague, right? And it has a caveat, if I offended you. What you really mean when you say that is, I'm sorry you're so sensitive, right? Half-hearted apology. But we know that half-hearted apologies don't mend broken relationships. If there is a rift in a relationship, there needs to be full acknowledgement, full confession of wrongdoing so that the wrongs can be made right. The same is true in our relationship with God. And David pulls no punches when he describes himself. Nor does he try to hide or cover up his sin like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Instead, he does, and this is what we've been learning time and time again as we've been journeying through the Psalms this summer. What does he do when, when, he, when God brings conviction? He runs straight to God. No hiding, no euphemisms, no trying to downplay. He goes straight to God and says, if you put all these words together, he says, I've failed to measure up. I've willfully rebelled. I'm guilty. I've committed great evil. And it's affected him so much, verse 8 tells us, he feels as if, as if his bones have been broken. This is a man who's broken before a holy God. As he's made aware of his sin, he confesses it to him. But he goes on even more. He goes even deeper. And he tells us in verse 4 that this isn't, this isn't just a, um, a, a mistake. This is a violation. This is an affront to a holy God. He says... Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I have read this psalm for many years, and this to me is, is one of the most challenging verses here. Because you go, wait a second, we just talked about how 
He committed adultery and killed a man. And here he is saying, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. So, so what does he mean here? Tim Keller, I think, gives a really helpful illustration. He says this, sin is like treason. If you try to overthrow your own country, you may harm or kill individuals in the process, but you will be tried for treason because you betrayed the entire country that nurtured you. So every sin is cosmic treason. It's overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. So here's what David's saying. Of course, he knows he sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, and by the way, the nation of Israel by failing as a, as a king. But he knows deep down that the ultimate offense, the primary offense, is against a holy God. The same is true with our sin. He goes on in verse, verses 5 and verse 6 to identify the, the root of this sin. He didn't commit the sin because somebody influenced him from the outside. Or he committed this sin because he was brought forth in iniquity. He says that I'm a sinner by birth. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And in light of all of this, he tells us that he feels very dirty. The word we would use for this is shame. It's not used in Psalm 51. He mentions guilt, but notice how often he talks about being washed. This need to be washed, verse 2 and verse 7. This need for cleansing in verse 3. of Purging from his sin in verse 7. He's confessing guilt and shame. He feels dirty before God because of his sin. He's separated from him. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. He knows that the communion with God that he once enjoyed has been interrupted by his sin. This is a full orb, leave nothing on the table confession. He pours everything out before God. And in doing this, he's an example for us. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we regularly and honestly acknowledge and confess our sins to God? Are you, are you a person marked by a life of confession of sin? Imagine you're out chopping wood in your backyard. I don't know why you'd be doing that around here, but just imagine with me that you're out chopping wood. And you have a bad swing and the axe misses and you gash your leg open. And you look at the, room and, uh, the wound and it's pretty serious. You know it's not life-threatening. So you do the best you can, you find some gauze in the first aid kit at home and you, you wrap it up, you're glad you didn't hit any major arteries, right? You're done wrapping it up and what should you do next? Now let me just tell you, you should go to the emergency room, like right away. It would be foolish to stop and go, you know what, I wrapped it up pretty good. I think it's going to be fine, I'll just let it heal in there. What's going to happen if you do that? The wound's going to fester, it's, it hasn't been cleaned out properly you need to go to a doctor who can properly dress the wound so that you can experience true healing. You might be terrified of doctors. You might go, I don't like doctors, or you might be like me, I tend to be cheap. You're like, ah, they're going to charge me a lot of money. Maybe I can see how to do this on YouTube, right? You might be scared that it's going to hurt more if you go to the doctor. And it may, friends, but listen, the doctor is there to bring healing to you. You need to uncover that wound. If we fail to confess our sins to God, we're covering up the wound of sin in our lives. 
and we're letting it fester until it slowly eats away at us. When Michael was here a few, years, a few weeks ago in Psalm 32, do you remember David talking about hiding his sin? Is like his bones were being eaten away from the inside. But friends, if we confess our sins, if we uncover the wound, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9. So not only do we experience conviction, we're made aware of our sin, confession, we have honest assessment and acknowledging our sin before God, but then when that happens, number three, we experience assurance, assurance. This is where we taste the sweetness of grace. Now, one of the questions we ask as you read this psalm is, was David pardoned by God? We have requests from, from David in the psalm. We don't have answers from God. So the psalm doesn't tell us directly, but we don't have to wonder because if we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, what's so encouraging and amazing about David's confession is right when he says, I have sinned against the Lord, the next words out of Nathan's mouth are, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. When he honestly and by faith confesses his sin, God, through Nathan, immediately assures him that he is pardoned of his sin, that he has forgiveness and grace. We also see a hint of this in the psalm itself. Look at verse 17. David's writing about worship in the temple. And he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. What does he mean there? I think David's acknowledging a temptation that he has when he's confronted with his sin. Maybe I've sinned greatly against God. Maybe if I go to the temple and make enough sacrifices, then God will accept me. Maybe if I, if I make some religious payment to God by what I do, then I can get back into God's good graces. Maybe you think that way. I've sinned greatly. I need to go to church more. I need to read my Bible more then God will love me and accept me. But no, what does David say? As he's reflecting on this, he's saying, no, those aren't the sacrifices that God desires. What God desires is a broken spirit. And what does he say? A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. Meaning if you come to God confessing your sin, knowing that there's no way for you to rectify the situation on your own. You wholly need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. What does God say? I will never despise you. I will never turn you away. See, sin is devastatingly serious, but the grace of God is much, much, much greater than our sin. That's the good news of this psalm. David's like the prodigal son. In Luke 15, he squanders everything in pursuit of a a life of sinful pleasure. And, And what does he say when he wants to come back? He goes, maybe, maybe dad will let me be a servant in the house. I've messed up too much. But the father sees him. And what does the father do? Drops everything, runs, embraces him, kisses him, puts a ring on his finger, throws a party because the son has come home. Friends, that's what happens when we confess our sin in faith to God, knowing that only Christ alone can forgive us. He doesn't say, you know what, Kevin, you've done it too many times. You're going to have to sit in the, in the corner on this one before I welcome you back. No. 
A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. What, what an encouraging thing, right? And, and here's how we are assured that David's prayers of this psalm were answered. Because we can jump ahead to the true and greater David, Jesus Christ, and see that every plea that David makes here in this psalm is answered in Jesus. Let me show you that for a moment. If you have a pen or pencil, these references may be helpful for you. But in verse 1, what is David pleading for? He's pleading for God's mercy and his steadfast love. What do we read in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5? After describing our sin, Paul says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Mercy and love answered in the person of Jesus. What about this plea to blot out his transgressions? Verse 1 and verse 9. When he says that, he's saying, Lord, erase my, my record of sin. Colossians 2 tells us, verse 13, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Listen to verse 14 of Colossians 2. By canceling or blotting out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You may say, how can God forgive the greatness of my sin? How can he just blot out the record? He can't ignore it. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He would be an unjust God if he did that. But he did pay for the sin because Christ was blotted out on the cross for us. He took your record of debt, you who believe, and he nailed it to the cross so you bear it no more. Praise the Lord. That's the gospel. What about his plea to be washed clean? Verses 2 and verse 7. In verse 10. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart. Hebrews 10 says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We sing the hymn all the time, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You are washed, Christian, because Christ is the sacrificial lamb whose blood has cleansed you. What about being restored to God? He makes that request. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Verse 10, renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. All of those prayers answered in Jesus. In John 7, verse 37, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this note, verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit. You want to be restored to the presence of God? Believe in Jesus. And when you do, he pours out his Spirit in you. Praise God. So for those of you this morning, maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, my prayer for you is that the Lord has been bringing 
conviction, maybe for the first time, conviction of your sin against Him, that you would see that your sin separates you from a holy God. But I pray also that it doesn't stop there. I pray that you hear this loud and clear. He will not despise your broken and contrite heart. You may say, I've done too much. Some of you are saying, David was really bad. I've done way worse than that. Well, friend, acknowledge that you're a sinner, separated from him. Believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died for sins, that God raised him from the dead. Turn from sin and self-rule to Christ and his rule of your life, and he will not despise you. You will be saved. The record of your debt will be blotted out. And if that's you and you're like, I want to hear more about that, find somebody in the church to talk to them about it. Be happy to, to speak with you afterwards. But also, as we talk about repentance, we're not just talking about non-Christians. David was a part of God's covenant family. So for those of us here, we know Christ. Maybe you're, maybe you're here this morning and you're discouraged by the, the weight of your sin. And you've dwelt so much on your sin, which is great, but you've dwelt so much on conviction and con confession that you've forgotten to turn to the sweetness of Christ's grace and the assurance we have in Jesus. Friends, if that's you, let me just encourage you to turn to him. He will not despise you. He will not push you away. He will not say, well, you have to be a servant in my house. Like that father welcoming home the prodigal son, he'll embrace you. Or maybe you're here as a as a professing follower of Jesus and you're just, you're hardened to God lately. You're, you're holding on to unconfessed sin. Friend, humble yourself. Ask God to give you a contrite heart. Confess your sins and turn to him afresh. And you can rest assured that Jesus Christ is for you. That's what David experiences in this psalm. And then lastly, and very brief, briefly, when that happens, we respond with praise living a life for the glory of God and the good of others. In verse 13, what does David say? He says, I will teach the transgressors of your ways, and the sinners will return to you. Verse 14, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. What is David saying here? He's saying, listen, as one who has tasted both the bitterness of my sin and the sweetness of Christ, Lord, I'm going to praise you with my lips. I'm going to take this message of grace to those around me. I'm going to be a, a brokenhearted evangelist for your grace. I'm going to worship you in humility. And God, and then he prays for his people. He says, Lord, please bless your people that we may worship you rightly. See, the spiritual metamorphosis, it, it begins inwardly with conviction and confession and being assured of Christ's grace, but it always leads upward in praise to God and outward in love towards others. Right? So friends, just in closing, I'd ask us, are we walking along the path of repentance? Are we experiencing conviction of sin, confessing our sin, turning to Christ, not just as something we did years ago when we became a Christian, but continually? To put simply, are you trusting in Christ? I'll leave you with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Learn this lesson, not to trust Christ because you repent, but to trust Christ to make you repent. Not to come to Christ because you have a broken heart, 
but to come to him that he may give you a broken heart. Not to come to him because you're fit to come, but to come to him because you are unfit to come. Your fitness is your unfitness. Your qualification is your lack of qualification. So friends, let's come to him that our joy may be restored. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise.